Hey there, guys and gals, it's me, El Capitan Muerte himself, Captain Death, here to tell you guys about an exciting new announcement I have that I'm going to put online here for a couple of the episodes. We have a new merch store up on redbubble.com, www.redbubble.com, backslash people, backslash El Capitan Muerte. Uh, you know, buy a sticker. It's like three bucks. Have have fun. You know, you do you. Uh, anyways, uh, moving on to the show. Uh, thank you all so much for your patronage, and stay spoopy. Three PM. What are you doing? Taking one last look, sir. At my friends. Die, Jedi dogs! <laughs> Wouldn't that be great, though, if like he comes out of his trance like as a new droid and he immediately just wants to kill everyone around him? <laughs> I um, I hate it. <laughs> And apparently the uh, the new rumor is that 3PO wipes his brain in order to save the group to read like a Sith holocron. So <laughs> it's, it's so important that he needs to k- essentially kill himself to be able to read it to save the plot. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Let's not use 3PO in Canto by ever you know because oh you know he's not doing anything. he's he, doing something important. He wouldn't progress the plot at all. You know, I'm sick of it. Should I look for Star Wars troll pasta for us to read? Oh my god! On a certain episode, There's, there wouldn't be. There would ha- There's troll pasta of everything. It's it's almost like a new rule. Uh, what do they call it? Rule thirty four. It's no, like if rule it ex- thirty four. If it exists, there's porn of it. Oh yes, well, that's rule thirty four. And then I'm saying the creepy pasta rule thirty four is if it exists, there's a troll pasta of it. Oh, that's I'm. Oh yeah, let's. I would. I would hey I would man, read that. If I've seen troll pasta based on fucking Superman sixty four. I have no doubt that there's a troll <laughs> pasta of uh, Star the Wars. Last Jedi. I was just saying Star Wars to some extent oh. out there. <laughs> Um, if it was The Last Jedi, it would almost make too much sense. I might like it more than the script. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, you know what? I'll just say this. And, and at risk of sounding like a bitter, uh, I'm not going to give an age, but I'm going to say 25 year old. You are allowed to have an opinion. Um, on this podcast, you mean? No, in life. What? Come on now, Cap. I don't think you're correct. <laughs> well, on this podcast, you are definitely allowed to have an guys, opinion. Guys, can you hold the telephones real quick? Okay, wait a minute. You're saying that I can have an opinion. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just kindly express it. Air it out. What I don't understand is how <clears throat> people's reactions to... Let's just leave The Last Jedi alone. I'm, I'm seeing so many reactions to... Rise of Skywalker, and it's like so much just blind joy for it, and I get it. Like new Star Wars is a great thing. There have been new Star Wars every year for the past four years, and the, some of it I've very much enjoyed. Yeah, some. But you know, let's 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 take 
each part for what it is and and not just because it's Star Wars and then we we forget about how objectively poor quality this trilogy has been. Well, I mean, I, I again, mean, that's your opinion, yeah. Uh, I mean, really, from a story writing perspective, lack of um, cohesiveness. Yeah, that, um, that's that's given. I, I I just don't. So basically, my point is, I don't understand. I don't understand the blind joy, and and just. Like, I don't care what anybody says. I can't wait for this. And I hate the haters. And I, I have hate some... people who... Let me let me devil's... Uh, sure. Let's... Devil's advocate here. I'm excited for it. Okay. Because I'm excited for it to end. So that we can have something new. To okay. fill its place. <laughs> yeah. To fill the void. To have someone new... Oh, yeah. Come at this material and do something completely original after the fact that the Skywalker thing is done. Like, we could go to a different area now. We could we could go into the Old Republic. We could go into the, the New Republic. We could we could go somewhere sure. else after this shit. Sure. Because, you know, the one way to fix this trilogy is to just remove it from any involvement sure. to the Skywalkers. Like, you know, you know? what you, you said is I, I have no problem with... An end to the Skywalker saga. The well, that's story. why I'm excited for it because then we could stop shitting on it. Yeah, but I'm I'm more of a purist where I want I, I wanted the trilogy as a whole, including including eight. I wanted it to be a cohesive and um, I want I, I wanted the th- the through line to make sense for all three. And when you have, and I'm I'm speaking. You know, I'm, I'm assuming Rise of Skywalker won't satisfy me, so you're I'll, you're I'll allowed that. that assumption. Um, and really, just because of how uh, much the Last Jedi deviated from the plot of the Force Awakens. Yeah, and and you and I have personally gone over it, and I won't go into it in this podcast. But there's same with uh, uh, Tom Bombadil. With the three of us together have. Uh, come together and basically like we we could have together written a better script for the last jedi and, i think still, i think we did in one night and, and still retain together. And, and still retain a lot of the like oh it was so much so that we were talking about going back and doing an edit oh, of yeah. it just to kind of improve things about the movie which we still might do at some point um, if, if there's ever a, uh, an edit floating around the internet of the last Jedi where like a half hour is taken out of it and it just seems to flow a lot better, we're the ones who made it just to, just take that with a grain of salt. What I, what I will say is that, um, whatever they do isn't going to hold much for me, um, sentimentally, I mean, okay. so like, I'm going to be able to move past it as as pretty quickly as I moved past Last Jedi, like, uh, emotionally speaking. Um, this is the first year I did not buy tickets the minute they came out. Oh, yeah, ne- neither have I. I yeah. think I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm still going to see it on the day of, maybe even midnight it. Um, didn't you say you were going to be out of here the week it comes out? No, I was seeing it with you. You're going to be here? Okay, oh, so yeah. we should go see that together. We should make sure Tom comes with us somehow. Maybe we could drive into New York and see Tom and then go see it with him. Me and my uncles always stay up for like three hours after the fact and just talk about what worked and what didn't. And I just remember like walking out of Last Jedi just like having like literally problems with everything. And I I don't think that's going to happen this time. I think Abrams is kind of a pushover um, and he's rather like spineless and kind of predictable. 
So I imagine this is going to be almost like, you know how each of the movies thus far has almost like fudged the last trilogy, like A New Hope, Empire, Mm -hmm. and Return of the Jedi? Nothing really gets quite as watered down as Return of the Jedi in, in the spectrum of Star Wars movies, because it's not that it's a bad movie, it's just everything happens as you expect it to happen, kind of magically, like... You know, everything about the Ewoks, them making it to Endor, you know, Vader's showdown with Luke and then the Emperor. Like, everything is just very predictable. Do you expect... Do you expect Vader's redemption, though? As a part of... You know, when when I first saw Empire and then I first saw Return of the Jedi, no. But, like, being able to pick up on, like, character arcs and shit, like... I can now say that there, okay. you know, there are establishing shots leading into um, at the end of Empire and at the beginning of uh, Return of the Jedi, where you kind of get that uh, Vader's being soft on Luke, like yeah. he lets him go to Endor, like he he lets him fall, but then when he pulls back in Empire, you can tell that he's just like a little upset that his kid didn't want to join him. And taking yeah. over the galaxy. So there's like a little bit of withdrawal there. So um, that being said, I expect Rise of Skywalker to be just as like watered down as like Force Awakens was, like a watered down version of A New Hope. You know, I expect a watered down version of a watered down version of Star Wars. So that being said, I don't think anything could disappoint me, yeah. which I'm happy about. Because the disappointment's and, already happened. And at this point, it, I think it's... Anything is up from here. And I think Abrams knows not to pull too many triggers uh, on the way out. I think he, you know, he did he did the same thing for Force Awakens. He didn't rile people up. He just left a lot of things open. Um, Speaking of Ryan Johnson, what's that new movie he has coming out, that murder mystery? Knives, Knives Out. That's interesting. Oh, I, I love it. I yeah. plan on seeing it. Um, Good cast. I It's an amazing cast. That cast is fucking awesome. And I have no doubt that it's going to be a great film because it's it's what he strives in. You know, it's what he's really good at, which is mystery and character and things that are not a part of established universes. Yeah. yeah. Like, Brick, Brick will remain... My favorite movie of all time for a very long time. And Ryan Johnson directed and wrote that entire thing. And I cannot let The Last Jedi rule what I think about Ryan Johnson as a person. But what I can do is have a completely separate opinion about The Last Jedi as a, as like unattached to Ryan Johnson as a person. So even I can take a step back and say, like, that movie ain't good. You know, I uh, for the last time talking about this on this this episode, <clears throat> I think the most damning thing, in my opinion, for the Last Jedi as a movie, not in the movie, but what damned it, was the reaction from Mark Hamill, the initial like. Oh, he hated it. The, yeah, his he flat his out, reaction he flat out came and came out and said, "I I vehemently disagree with where exactly. you are taking my character." With and where you that went public. Luke. That went public. He was not hiding it. And then when Disney told him to shut up, he begrudgingly made like exactly backhanded comments for the rest of the tour. Yep. 
And that's what damned the movie because it it that solely validates the criticisms. It's, it's the worst part of the movie too, honestly. If you if you strip the Luke stuff away from Last Jedi, it's almost a better movie. Yeah, yeah, I I I know that there's because at least then it's not shitting you know all over a character that you know whose every action does not make sense to their lore at sure. all. Sure, and there's like there's like some argument out there that no wait it does actually adhere to his his trajectory as a, as a whoever person. Is, whoever is saying that is a fucking idiot because the person who sways the greatest Sith of all time to come back to the light side does not swing a lightsaber on his nephew. Yeah. Even in his weakest moment. In yeah. his weakest moment, he might force push his nephew, but he does not pull a lightsaber on family. He didn't even want to pull a lightsaber on his fucking dad. Don't tell me that... That he, he shows up next to a kid's bed and pulls a lightsaber Here's, because he sees something sad. He saw he saw a lot of sad things that his dad did when, when his dad was alive. Like, here's something that would have been cooler. Just, just a quick thought. Yeah. This is for your Knights of the Old Republic fans out there. Yeah. So, Luke, Grandmaster, seemingly from, from EU and, you know, Legends now, uh, Luke, probably, arguably, the most one of the most, if not the most powerful Jedi. He he achieves that. He goes to the dark side in the extended universe. Yeah, he achieves some do, of the greatest do, does, power. Do the, as... do the do the listeners out there want to know why he goes to the dark side in the extended universe? One word. Family. Pussy. Oh. Oh yeah. Well. Oh. Mara Jade. Puss. He does it for the puss boy. I thought. I thought it was I thought, oh, Jason. It, he also goes for Jason, but it's it's also for Mara. So so the my point about bringing up how powerful he gets. Yeah, you can use that. You can use that fact about his character in the Last Jedi and, and setting up well setting up the events of the the trilogy. So in Knights of the Old Republic, what they do to Rev and the Jedi Council wipes his pretty much not just his memory but his connection to the Force, mm-hmm. which is borderline ethical instead of just killing him if you want to talk oh, about if you want to talk about ethics right so luke an ethical guy very powerful jedi powerful with the force one of the most powerful jedi ever you don't think he could have just wiped ben's he, brain exactly he could have severed his connection to the force if he had if he realized his potential his dark potential that would have been more logical as a, from a character perspective for luke to do then ben could have retaliated that would, you know. What makes your point even funnier is that he almost does the same thing to Rey in The Last Jedi. He's like, he's like, I opened up the Force to you and you immediately went to the dark side. Like, how am I supposed to train you? Like, he has that moment with her. So it's just like... Was he going to kill her? <laughs> so the, <laughs> people, what I'm going to, what I'm going to, I'm going to deviate us from, from Star Wars talk, but I'm going to say that people have to understand that like above all else, like Tenron and I are nerds. Like you have to allow us our like fifteen minutes to just kind of talk about shit when it's yeah. when it's at the top of our minds. Because like honestly, I've been told time and time again that we should just have like a nerd podcast where we just talk about shit. But like, it's it, I just don't think it would be as successful <laughs> as, no, as too like much reading that. scary stories. There's so. Too much of that. Yeah, there's too there's too many like nerds sitting on couches talking about shit that they like. Yeah. And um people have to allow us our fifteen minutes of 
of connection because it kind of deals with where I wanted the conversation to go, which is like this last part of Spire is setting up to be (laughs) just as kind of disappointing as Rise of Skywalker because it's like we have all of our pieces where we wanted them to be, but they're all about to go in opposite directions of one another. Yeah. Like I almost see much like, much like Ray, how she has like no development of character and just kind of exists through they every were scenario. So close. They were so close. <laughs> they were starting it in the force awakens. It was starting. You saw it happen. She didn't have to be a Mary Sue, but last Jedi just fucking nailed it. Yeah. So, um, it, I expect our narrator to almost without a scar come out of this situation and to have everything that happened in the last episode, just kind of neatly wrapped up with some kind of scapegoat that he's like his family moves or something, you know, like he comes back and they're like, well, you fucked everything up for this entire family. So now we got to move to a different state. Um, and then the kid remains crazy for like the rest of his life because of the bells. Like, that's just what I see happening because the, the latter point, the opposite of that is our character like dies or something happens to him in and the spire while he's leaving. Yeah. And I just don't see that fucking happening. <laughs> like we, all of our, the, the only chess pieces that remain on the board are our narrator, the animatronics and what's his dick fucking yeah, the, German, the, the, German the, inventor guy. <laughs> the, the mechanist, the, the clockmaker, the clockmaker. Yeah. He, um, I'm sure we'll see his name pretty soon. I just forgot it. Um, it, uh, I don't think, um, I don't think resolution is much in our future here. And much as I feel about the last Jedi, I don't think resolution is something I much care for anymore. Um, no. so, I mean, is, the, is there anything you want to say? Any assumptions of character or how you hope this is going to go? Because last episode, we kind of said what we don't want to happen, and it's, I, it's all I can assume is I going actually, to happen. I have no hope. <laughs> like you as a person right now? Immediately, like life, yes. Life-wise? Uh, not life-wise, uh, story-wise. <laughs> With the Star Wars-wise. Star Wars, Spire. Yeah. Um, it's uh, fair. I don't really... Yeah. <laughs> Um, do you, do you just want to jump into it? Um, you know, one, one quick comment. Yeah, um, I'll allow it. You know, so for 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 people who argue that, um, the Joker was. Oh yeah, we didn't talk about Joker. I also saw Zombieland too, and I don't I don't have many good things to say about it, so we'll just skip over that. Well, I didn't see it, so we'll skip over. It, yeah, fair. Joker. A lot of people. Not I don't know if it's a lot, but people criticize it for being what it is and that it could potentially incite some um less than happy individuals less than, slash sure. incels slash incels sure and guess you, what not a single incel stood up and shot up a movie theater so no one could say anything anymore boom but here's here's <laughs> one here's one that you can't contest sure you know who really likes this movie who russell brand he he had a, a full well, russell brand is always about starting revolutions and trying to overthrow the government and shit that's, yeah. that's his like he so motto. I watched a, his review video of it on YouTube yeah and he brings up the whole point about that argument I was talking about 
where like it could incite this, this, and this. But then he's like, and I don't think that's a proper. He says something like that's not a proper argument to make uh, as to why the movie is bad. Um, what this movie does brilliantly is hold up the mirror and to society, to society. and yeah. and he he said it was like uh, he referred to it as like Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix's film Joker, absolutely brilliant. Uh, he loved it. I I liked it a lot too. And and our first reaction when we talked about it was, I told you that I was scared and kind of mad at how much I liked it because I relate very heavily to uh, his circumstances in a way. What what's his character's name in the film? Arthur. Arthur, right? Um, his mom kind of raises him backwards about shit. Like my mom did that to me. Your mom did that to you. My dad. Your dad did that. My dad, to you. yeah. Um, you know, uh, should be on medication, gets taken off of it unwillingly. You know, against his will. Um, shitty jobs, shitty girl situations, like things that just don't work out. One bad day leads to another. Like we've all been there, but some of us relate a little bit more closely. And he's to got it. a well disability. Yeah, it was mental illness, and um, the, I just like I remember walking out of the theater just like <sighs> feeling almost like touched that this movie exists because like. Nothing about it says that it should, but someone just chose to make it. And honestly, you don't even need the Batman stuff. You don't even need the Joker stuff for it to be a good movie. Like, that's when I know yeah, it's a good movie. That's when you true. can take away those aspects and it still has an impact. Um, and, and I think it's definitely romanticized and exaggerated. I don't think one person can start a movement anymore. I think we, we live in too much of an age where... If one person existed, the government would just assassinate them and, you know, Epstein them and make sure that nothing ever happens, you know. That that Big Brother shit happens now. So, yeah. like, we can't... I don't mean to get into Illuminati conspiracy theorist mode, but it's just, like, that sh the revolution shit can't happen anymore. We look at Egypt. Like, we live in a society where the government can literally just turn off the internet if everyone starts talking about overthrowing the government. Like... It's just, it's never going to happen. Yep. So that type of, like, revolutionary, like, mindset to, like, put into people, like, I don't think it's damaging either because we get movies all the fucking time that make people think certain things. Sure. I just got mad because I came home and just sat and thought about it forever. And I just, it just made me connect so much more to it. And I remember when we were talking about it, like, both you and I found the same things relatively touching or funny. Like, even even violent things. Like, I find American Psycho a very funny movie. I think Joker has some very similar moments where it's, like, black humor, they used to call it. Or at least they call it in Britain. It's, like, dark humor. Um, it's, like, when he, when he shoots Murray in the face after telling, like, a, a shitty joke. Like, you know, like that, I found that funny, but the entire theater fucking gasped when he did that. I know. As I, I saw it coming. I know I, the comic. I know exactly what it's based off of. And, and the first, the original Batman movie in the eighties did the same fucking thing. I cracked so. up laughing. I just was like, <laughs> hands slowly clapping. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know what else I cracked a smile at? Um, and further spoilers. Sorry, guys. No, the movie's been out for a while. You're fair. Uh, oh, that's that's true. Um, but 
I cracked a smile as soon as the first shot was fired in the subway. Oh, when when he defended when himself, when he's kicking and, and, and kicking and, and boom, and it's like a, this guy. huge just I don't know where the blood and shot. I'm like, oh whoa, okay, yep, all right. I'm like nodding. I remember I'm nodding my head like, okay. You kick yeah. a guy enough throughout his entire yeah. life, and then you give him a gun, he's gonna use it. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't know, it made sense to me, um, and I think that's why I was upset. But in this it's example, like so much the, of it made sense to me. The rage is directed at the the perpetrator of the crime. The right the right people deserve who deserve the justice they they, they, get. they didn't deserve to be shot which is the, the 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 morality question but they also were putting a guy in a life-threatening situation sure so they got so they should have known the the possibilities of, they, of their actions yeah well yeah they caused something and the effect happened I right mean. the effect was uh a lot more damaging than I bet they anticipated because I'm sure they didn't expect to kick a clown and then die. But, you know, he absolutely did that. And I, I mean, I thought it was justified too, but that would never have held up in court, let alone in Gotham. He would have ended up in, in Arkham in a, in a minute because of uh, how the rich protect each other in, exactly. that, in that city. So, you know, and, and, it's, and that's, again, a mirror to life. It, the entire thing reminded me of the, um, the cave... Analogy. Have you ever heard the cave Plato's, analogy? Plato's allegory of the cave. Yeah. About how, uh, well, perception of reality is sometimes limited, and uh, once you um, escape that cave, and you can understand that there's a world out there, not just it's not just shadows um, cast Lit by up on a the, wall, mm-hmm. cast by the reality in mm-hmm. a way. Um, mm-hmm. I I kind of came home and had that little moment with myself where I was just like, I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm watching all these things and I'm taking all these things to heart and it's, and it's meaning so much more to me than like reality does. Yeah. And I, and I, I had to have a couple sit backs and a couple tokes to kind of meld myself down because, you know, this isn't spoilers for anyone because my episodes have been coming out so sporadically and I've been saying you know, sad shit in my, in my descriptions, but like, I've been going through a lot lately. There's been a lot in my personal life that I'm not happy about and a lot of bad shit that's happening to me. And I'm still trying to get the podcast to come out every week. So it's, it's rough. And then a movie like Joker comes out and it just makes me so much more mad about everything that's happening in my life. So I I had to have a moment where, and, and over the past two weeks, I haven't been home so it's like I'm all over the place. I'm busy. There's too much shit going on. Like, I just had a lot happening all at once. And that movie came out at like the best time, I think, for that movie to come out. Um, but yeah, I thought I thought Joker was amazing. Um, I am so glad that no one, you know, lit up a nightclub after watching it. Because I, I'm sick of the mentality. I, you know, that... I hate I hate saying this because yeah. it I feel like it's been a while since something has happened. Something happens every day. It's just it doesn't always make the news. Exactly, uh, but it's been a while since we've heard of anything. Yeah. What's your point? Oh no, I just think just it's... that it's been a while. No, I just think it's interesting that. There wasn't anything hap- Nothing seemed to have happened. Nothing cataclysmic in happened in response to a movie that is about uh, illegitimate and mentally ill people not having control of things and radically altering 
society. Yeah. It's, it's a movie, you know, I think people can disconnect. I'd like to think people can disconnect. That's kind of their point. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't, you know, carry weight. Um, which is why I like the movie so much. Um, it, I don't know if it's movie of the year for me yet. There's still a lot more to come out, but it's definitely fucking up there. Of 2019? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was great. It's definitely up there. If I if I really had to think about it, I'd have to go back and analyze everything I've seen this year. But it's definitely in the top ten somewhere. And Joaquin Phoenix was phenomenal. There's also still a lot more I have to see. Like, there's a lot more on my list that I'm just like, I have to get to that before the year is over. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, um, Joaquin Phoenix was once optioned the role for Doctor Strange and turned it down because it just wasn't enough for him. And now I know why. <laughs> Um, because Marvel is too lighthearted and commercialized and systematic for his involvement. And I also don't think he ever wanted to work for Disney again after Brother Bear, because he was just so... Oh, God, that's he right. Hated, he hated it so much. I didn't know that. Or I didn't know oh, that he you, hated it. You, you need to go down the Joaquin Phoenix trail, my friend. He has a damaged fucking life, you know? I know his brother. His family, the cult... Well, I'm not aware of that, but I know his family his was in a cult. His, River, his, River Phoenix. River was such a good-looking and talented guy. Like he yeah. could have had such a good career. Um, yeah, his uh, his family was in a cult. He basically grew up brainwashed. His perception of things is severely skewed. If you go and watch any interview for like any movie that Joaquin Phoenix has ever have ever been in, he will say something ridiculous that will make you like think for a little bit like oh shoot the, the brother bear ones are hilarious because some light-hearted reporter will sit down and just be like you know this movie made me cry so much and then joaquin phoenix will like break in and be like i don't believe you've ever cried a day in your life and he'll just keep the same straight wow. face the entire time and she'll just <laughs> and she'll just smile and be like <laughs> and he'll just like stone-faced like look at her just be like i don't believe it <laughs> I don't believe you cried once during this movie, if you even watched it. Like he'll just say shit like <laughs> That's that. That's amazing. <laughs> and 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 he is nuts. Like he's he's crazy, but he's also crazy talented. He's I feel the same way about him as I do about like Daniel Day Lewis. Like I would never want to meet the guy. I would never want to meet Joaquin Phoenix. Sure, but I can enjoy his performances from a distance. <laughs> sure. Um, you know who I would want to meet? Keanu Reeves. Carrie's is one of the nicest guys in the fucking world. Yeah. Who has been through the ringer and hasn't let it affect his personality at all. Love him. He's such a, he's a, he's a heart. He's a heart for and humanity. And I cannot wait for cyberpunk. <laughs> Cyberpunk's going to be good. All right. We've, we've droned on long enough. <laughs> we have to allow the people some, uh, some creeps, some spooks. We have to bring the finale. We have to bring the thunder. Like we, uh, like we promised with this series. Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> oh, don't don't break it yet. I'm not releasing it till Halloween. <laughs> oh, Shh, that was that was a clue. That was a clue for something that that I haven't. That was a clue for something I haven't released yet. Oh, wait, this this will be out after Halloween. <laughs> oh fuck, you're right. <laughs> Happy Halloween. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Um, yeah, this is the Halloween episode on Halloween this year. I just you know go over to the YouTube because I just released. <laughs> <laughs> uh, part one of the Luigi's Mansion playthrough of our Lots of Pasta plays. Um, yeah, go and watch that. 
that's we could plug that. I forgot. <laughs> my my oh, weeks God. have melted. I want candy. <laughs> I have candy upstairs. We could have some candy. Hell yeah. But only after we finish our story. In oh, fact, we we only Adolf Riefler. We don't have much to read. No. There are like thirty pages left, so yep. I think we can get through this pretty quickly. Oh yeah. Um, this is going to be the finale for Spire in the Woods. I hope the movie is better. That's right. I agree. This is going to be part nine of the story out of ten, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and let Tenron take it away. Adolf Riefler slid through the crowd exchanging pleasantries with farmers and businessmen, neighbors and travelers alike. No one seemed to notice me following in his wake. They never looked at me or reacted to anything Adolf and I said to one another. They also didn't seem to notice any of the others that were, like me, stuck. Most of the conversations Adolf had with his guests were brief. They'd offer him the sort of enthusiastic pleasantries I imagine you'd hear any time a work of art is unveiled. And he'd respond graciously enough, until the man he addressed as Edwin inquired about Amy Lowell's whereabouts. Something in Edwin's tone made me think he was interested in more than paying his respects. I haven't seen her all night, Edwin said. Are you sure? I could have sworn she was out here around eleven. Adolf's voice dripped with condescension. 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 What did I say? Condescension? Condensation. It dripped with water. Keeping it. You know, that was good. Yeah, that was really good. It's late. We're tired. I'm starving, by the way. I denied myself Taco Bell because I'm being a good lad. A good little lad. A nice, poor good little lad and uh, I don't need the I'm so hungry Okay, the couplet Rob left in his suicide note to Alina floated to the fore of my mind and every hour I see her face as she runs the endless race which is like my favorite part of the story because it's just shrouded in sad mystery yeah well, uh, but it's not mysterious to us. We know what it's about. Well, we know what it's about now, but like yeah. that, that statement is still like really cool. When I'd first heard the story of the widower's clock, I had thought it was cruel that one could be damned just for laying eyes on Amy Lowe's corpse. After all, we hadn't killed her. We hadn't put her on display. What I realized watching Edwin calling in the night was the, that the partygoers weren't stuck watching the endless race. If they had, if they had been. Uh, they wouldn't have been able to leave. No, only those of us who had heard the bells and followed them to the spire were stuck. But why? They had heard the bells. They had heard the real bells. Well, why weren't they stuck with us? Midnight marked the end of the automaton's reenactment with Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox. Once Lee had signed the Articles of Surrender, the tent backdrop zipped out of view, and dozens upon dozens of automatons took their curtain call dancing behind the generals like something out of a Busby Berkeley musical. The freed slaves came out in a chorus line, doing the can-can as if they were the Rockettes. The partygoers howled with laughter. I wanted to be disgusted. It was every bit as racist as a minstrel show. But no matter how much of Adolf Riefler's cruel indifference was reflected in his work, the widower's clock was still too fine a thing to look away from. 
When the Southern Bell automaton returned, I couldn't help but notice how sin sinuously its arms moved. Her arms. The bells tolled once more and I was alone again, freezing in the dark. It was so cold, the blood from my fingers froze before it could clot. The raft wasn't much of a blanket. I needed to make a fire or I was going to wind up with a frostbite. Half of my mother's Bible was a chunk of ice, but the top half was dry. I began ripping the undamaged portions out. The delicate work was slow going with my fingers. I twisted up the torn pages and set them in a small pile near the hole in the floor. I wasn't worried that the floorboards would catch. They'd absorbed far too much moisture over the years. Besides, paper burns fast and at a fairly low temperature, especially when each page is as thin as the Bible's. After a few minutes, my hands weren't quite as numb, but it was clear my meager kindling wouldn't hold out until morning. I needed more fuel if I wanted to survive. My ribs weren't thrilled to be moving again. It would have been so much easier if the bells were ringing. I didn't want to love their sound, but they were, they were like an X you just can't get over. As bad as they are for me, even today I still crave them. The automatons hung lifeless on their posts. Their clothes had largely disintegrated. Moisture had penetrated much of their lacquered finish, spotting them with mold. Even though the years hadn't been kind, looking at them in the flickering glow of the lighter, they were still marvelous. I ran my hand down the arm of a rebel soldier almost as lovingly as Adolf had done with the automaton that encased his wife's remains. If I wanted to survive, I'd have to burn it. The area that had once been Adolf Riefler's workspace was littered with rusty tools and ancient gears. I took up one of the wrenches from where it had fallen. My fingers ached just holding it and set about dismembering the nearest automaton. The bolts were rusted. It was tough to get any of them to budge. Straining against the wrench made my ribs feel like they'd been replaced with broken glass and fish hooks. But eventually the bolts turned and the arm fell to the ground. The wood portion of the arm was no more than a quarter of an inch thick, just enough to cover the clockworks inside and hold the paint and finish. It wouldn't burn for much longer than the paper. I had to burn them all. The only upside was that I wouldn't have to unscrew another bolt. The wood was brittle enough that I could smash it to pieces with the wrench, and if I used my offhand, well, it still hurt like hell, but there wasn't anything I could do about it. I smashed the Confederate and Union soldiers. I smashed Lee and Grant and Lincoln. I smashed women and children and slaves. I slaughtered them like animals. <laughs> and, you know, children too. They're animals. They're animals! I hate them. <laughs> that was good. I smashed women and children and slaves and then gathered up the pieces. I had already ripped apart and burnt the pages of my mother's Bible, but somehow smashing the automatons felt worse. I felt like a small child, watching the tide wash away a beautiful sandcastle. There would never be another clock like this. The rack that had once held Adolf's wrenches on the wall made a decent grate, and soon I had a sputtering fire. It wasn't great, but it was warm enough that I'd live. I draped the raft over my shoulders and slowly laid myself back down. I was out of immediate danger and could feel my body shutting down. I woke when the bells tolled one. The fire was gone. Adolf's workshop was warm. But before I could so much as sit up, their call ended and I was back where I'd begun. I threw more splinters of wood on the fire and laid back down. Sleep 
did not come easy. The automaton's nude clockwork, exposed for the first time in decades, cast intricate shadows that seemed to dance in the firelight. Hmm. I couldn't put my fingers on them, but something was bothering me about them. Hmm. I woke up again at two o'clock. It was dark inside the workroom, but when the doors opened for the slave automatons to zip out, the electric lights illuminating the clock poured in. The southern bell hung limp on her post. Her eyes stared blankly in my direction. A large backdrop swung out through the door blocking the light. I was alone in the dark with Amy Lowell's corpse. Once the backdrop rotated out of the light, I saw the southern bell slide out after it. For a split second, I thought I saw the southern bell's head swivel on her neck, as if she were tracking me with her eyes. But it had to have been the clockwork getting her in the position to perform, right? See, this I like. Then, I realized what had been bothering me about the automatons. Fletch had told me Rob put his fingers inside the eye sockets of a human skull, but all the automatons, before I'd smashed them up for firewood, had their liqueured faces intact. Amy Lowell's corpse returned to its starting position. Its limbs swung forward like a rag doll's when it came to an abrupt stop. She was looking at me again. Could a sculpture have a ubiquitous gaze, or was that only paintings? My heart was racing as I waited for the bells to ring a second time. Why had Adolf painted her face with such a creepy little grin? It wouldn't stop staring. I rose to my feet and turned her head away from me. I did it quick because I couldn't stand to touch her. The bells tolled once more. Was Amy Lowell's body going to be waiting for me in the dark? Amid the kindling, there were only a couple of pieces of wood large enough to use as a torch. It took a painfully long minute, my eyes straining to detect anything out of place in the darkness, to get one of them to catch. I held the torch aloft in my left hand. Even though I doubted in my present condition that I could ever swing it, I held one of the larger wrenches in my right. The weight of it felt good. It reminded me of, of the rock I had used to attack Ryan Dorset. Nice, bro. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. That car had it coming. <laughs> Fuck your car. <laughs> the floorboards groaned beneath my feet as I moved from automaton to automaton, examining each in turn. The faces weren't designed to move. Beneath the wood, each of them had a little metal knob that could never be mistaken for a skull. There was a stairwell in the far corner going down to the room below. I had twice used I, I had twice used it while the bells were ringing, but now there was nothing down there but ice. Had Rob gone that deep? I doubted the groundwater would have been lower in the summertime, but I couldn't say for sure. Cautiously I went down, one creaking step at a time. Dirt and other particulates made it impossible to see much of anything in the ice. Although I thought I could make out some of the furniture I'd seen on my way to view the clock. I was reluctant to venture too far into the room, lest I slip on the ice and break another bone. But I was sure there was nothing of interest to be found. My heartbeat slowed. I was relieved not to have found Amy Lowell's automaton. Rob could have touched anything in the dark. Maybe he was touching her automaton while the bells rang and then found himself alone in the dark after their last toll. Or maybe Fletch got part of the story wrong. 
Who could say? I can. I crept back to my fire, wrapped the raft around me and let my exhaustion overtake me. My fire had burned out while I was asleep, and I awoke shivering violently. There was plenty of wood, but I was almost out of Bible pages. As I carefully arranged twists of paper beneath some of the thinner splinters, I heard a dreadful sound. It was quiet, but impossible to miss, like fingernails on a chalkboard. I froze. The fire could wait. The noise stopped. I held my breath and strained my ears to listen for even the faintest sound. Nothing. Maybe an animal had gotten in here with me and scratched its claws across a metal surface. A raccoon or a rat could live down here. Maybe an owl nested in the old gears. I wouldn't exactly call myself an animal lover, but I found the idea of another living thing being nearby very comforting. <laughs> I returned to the work at hand. When you're building a fire, airflow is key. If the wood presses down on the paper too much, you'll smother the flames before the wood can catch. My hands were shaking from the cold, and it was tough getting the wood to sit right, but I managed it after several tries. Just as I flicked the lighter to light the paper, the noise came again. It was long, dry screech, the sort of sound a metal gate makes when its hinges need oil. There was no way an animal was making that noise. Desperately, I groped along the ground for the wrench, ignoring the cries of pain from my raw, still bleeding nail beds. The sound grew closer in fits and starts. I couldn't find the wrench in the dark. I could use a lighter, but... It was coming from the direction of the automatons. It couldn't have been very far away, 10 feet, maybe maybe 15. I didn't want to look. I didn't want to see what could be making that noise. I gave up on the wrench and crawled backwards trying to get away. It drew closer. My hand found nothing but air and I was momentarily filled with that sickening feeling of falling until my back slammed hard into the wood at the edge of the hole. With my shoulders stretched over the ledge, the strain on my ribs was unbearable. I had to bite my tongue to keep from crying out in pain. The lighter was my only chance to get around the pit. I didn't want to look. I was shaking so badly I nearly dropped the lighter. And then the noise stopped. I sat in pitch black in total silence. My heart still racing, unsure of what to do. Light my way around the hole, search in the dark for the wrench. Whatever it was didn't give me long to ponder. A small thud of something heavy hitting the wood echoed through the room, followed by a dragging sound. I think she's off her, uh, I think she's off her track. <laughs> I flicked the lighter once, and nothing. The sound grew closer, twice, and it lit. Standing over me was the Southern Bell Audubaton. The polished wood veneer was badly burnt in places. The left half of its face was broken away, revealing the hollow eye socket of Amy Lowell Putnam's skull. I screamed until my broken ribs forced me to stop, but what remained of Amy Lowell's wooden face just stared back at me, as blank as ever. Her head was still twisted around like I had left it at two o'clock. 
She stepped unsteadily towards me. Her limbs were stiff, her movements spastic and unnatural. It was almost as if she wasn't in complete control of her own body. The pole, which had once pulled her along the clock's tracks, making her dance, hung down from, her, from between her legs and dragged on the floor behind her. My eyes darted down, looking for the wrench. She was standing right over it. For a moment, as slow as she moved, I thought I'd be able to outrun her, but as I stood and turned to skirt the hole, she showed me I was mistaken. Her arms sprang forward with such force they almost knocked me to the floor. Her wooden fingers dug into my shoulders, pinching my flesh against the bone. Her face, all the while, remained as impassive as a porcelain doll's. I couldn't bear her looking at me, so I dropped the lighter. We struggled there in the dark on the edge of the hole. Crying and sniveling, I begged for my miserable life as she forced me down to my knees. I felt the heavy metal pull that impaled her corpse brush against my leg as she continued to maneuver my body against my will. She turned me around, forcing me first to my hands and knees, before finally shoving me down onto my stomach. Her hands pinned my shoulders to the ground. I could feel her torso folding itself. The remains of her spine must have been bent at a right angle. The metal pole rose and fell, rose and fell, each time smacking the floorboards with a dull thunk. Her chest kept twisting like a wasp, moving its abdomen into position to sting. I didn't fully process what was happening until the pole came down hard on my inner thigh. Emilio Putnam intended to treat me to some of what she'd endured at her husband's hands. I stopped thinking, I stopped feeling, I was too terrified for that. I flailed my limbs, I snatched at the wood floor with my remaining fingernails. When my hand came down in the hole, I didn't even consider the consequences. It was the only way I might possibly avoid being sodomized by the automaton, and I took it. I pulled with every last ounce of strength I could muster. My ribs screamed in agony. Blood started gushing from my fingers once again, but I kept pulling, dragging myself and Amy Lowell right to the very edge. The pole came down on my leg again. It felt like being hit by a hammer. When she raised the pole once more, I pulled my upper body over the edge and rolled my shoulders down. Amy Lowell's weight must have been off balance because she went spilling over the edge, landing on the ice below with a sickening crash. I was back where I had started, lying in the pitch black, struggling for breath. From the hole came a small sound, almost a scratching noise, then a thud, followed by more scratching. Amy Lowell still, was still moving. I fumbled about on my hands and knees until I found the lighter. It lit on a third try. I held it over the hole in the floor. Amy Lowell's head had been twisted nearly 180 degrees in the fall. A chunk of her skull from just over her eye socket had been knocked out along with more of the Southern Belle veneer, but hadn't slowed her spastic movements. Her wooden hands and feet struggled to gain purchase on the ice. My feet started moving. I had no clue where to go. Where could I? There was no way out. I just had to get as far away from Amy Lowell Putnam as I could. I grabbed the wrench as I passed and took to the stairs. The flames sputtered as I climbed. I had no idea how much lighter fluid I had left. Found myself wishing I had grabbed another piece of wood. 
I could have used as a torch. It held out, though, all the way to the topmost stair I could reach. I sat down and quietly closed the lighter. My mistake became obvious at the moment I heard her pull rise and fall on the first step of the staircase. Thump. I had nowhere to go. Thump. I was more trapped than I would have been in the wide open room below. Thump. I had to get out of there, out of the spire. Thump. I lit the zipper once more and held it aloft. Thump. Could I make that jump? How stable were the beams holding up the stairs? Thump. Beneath the gap in the stairs, Amy Lowe's corpse con continued its climb. Thump. It was only five feet, give or take, separating me from the surface. Nothing. Thump. Of course. The stairs were higher on the far side of that gap. Thump. And the wood probably couldn't support me landing on it. Thump. And I was in no condition to jump. Thump. There was no way I could make it. I was stuck and she was coming for me. Thump. I slumped down on the top step. All I could think was, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Thump. Then I thought that dying might be preferable to what she had planned for me. I could just lean back and fall, splattering my brains all over the floor below. Thump. What if I didn't die? What if I only broke an arm or my legs? She'd turn around. Thump. And come get me. Thump. There was no running if I was going to survive or have to fight. I had the wrench. I had the high ground. Maybe I could get... You know what? I'm sick of your Star Wars references. <laughs> Never look at me. I have the high ground, Anakin. Never look at me again when I'm reading. <laughs> I made sensual <laughs> eye contact with him sitting next to him on this couch. And you know what he did, everyone? You know what he did? He shook his fucking head. <laughs> oh. Oh, God. The hunger is still there, folks. I'm still so hungry. <laughs> We're almost done. I know. <clears throat> thump, thump, thump. There were 18 steps between each landing. The pole hanging down from between her legs prevented her from standing. She had to crawl on all floors. That's all terrifying. Her hands and feet sounded like hard-soled shoes against the wood steps. Each time she reached a landing, the pole would drag across the ground. When she reached the landing below me, I sparked the lighter and set it against the wall, hoping that'd be enough to keep keep it from getting knocked over in the fight to come. Amy Lowell didn't react. She just kept climbing. I stood and raised the wrench over my head. My breathing was rapid and shallow. Her head was still twisted around her neck, staring off into the darkness. She stopped just outside my reach. Still as a stone, she appeared every bit as inanimate as all the other automatons. Was she trying to lure me in or draw me away from the edge? Why was she just sitting there? My arm was beginning to shake. I couldn't hold the wrench up for much longer. It was now or never. Before my foot could hit the step below mine, her arms and legs uncoiled and she exploded forward. Ugh. My wrench hit feebly on her back as her wooden hands latched onto my throat. Together, we began falling backwards towards the gap in the stairs. Just before we slipped over the edge, the bells tolled. My back slammed against the stairs. The automaton was gone. My brain was still panicking. I, I couldn't think of anything but her. Where was she? Where was Amy Lowe Putnam's body? She was running the endless race down at the bottom of the stairs. I scrambled to my feet, determined to put more distance between us. The stairs were solid beneath me. It was a good feeling. 
one we take for granted most of the time. The bells rang a second time just as I reached the slatted windows at the top of the spire. A dizzying notion bubbled out of my subconsciousness. If I was standing here when the bells stopped ringing, what would happen? When the bells had finished tolling eleven, I had been shunted inside, but not back to where I had begun. Could I leave? Could it be that simple? I raised the wrench in my hand. It would make short work of thin wooden slats. But I couldn't do it. This was the spire. The real spire, and not its decrepit remains. It housed the bells. The note they sang was beautiful beyond comprehension. I knew it was crazy. I knew it was my life on the line, but I couldn't destroy any part of the widower's clock. Not while the bells were ringing. You can't understand unless you've heard them. The vibrations penetrate you, infuse you, permeate you. You would do anything to hear the bells. Sacrifice anything. No matter how much you'd regret it later. No matter how much they scared you or made you question your humanity. To hear their call is to be owned by them. Gently, I laid the wrench on the ground and began removing the slats one at a time. Careful not to chip the paint. I felt like a fool. I knew I, I should have just bashed my way outside. I knew it, but I couldn't do it. Instead, I was treating the removal of each slat as if I were, was an artist restoring the Mona Lisa. The bells would ring again any second and that'd be it. Maybe I'd be up here on the landing, maybe I'd be back on the stairs where I'd started. Maybe Amy Lowe's automaton would be with me. Or maybe I'd be alone in the cold and the dark. Finally, I'd removed enough slats to squeeze through into the moonlight, clinging to the spire for dear life. I hazarded a downward glance. The party appeared to be over, but I could still make out those poor lost souls I'll join one day, stuck watching the endless race for all eternity. I could see some of the automatons illuminated by the harsh electric lights, two of them moving stiffly, zipping along their tracks. The bells rang for the third and final time. I scrunched my eyes closed. If it hadn't worked, I didn't want to know, and stepped off the ledge. That felt like the chapter I had been waiting for the entire fucking story. A little bit. Yeah. Just, I'm happy. Just a I am happy that happened. I am delightfully surprised that they did the creepy pasta thing. After 120 after pages? Eight, after or? eight parts and almost 150 pages. Yeah. Yeah. I am happy. I'm content. Where did Adolf go? He left. He said, I'm going to get a sandwich or something. That's right. <laughs> All right. So this is the last part. This is part 10, the finale. The first thing I was aware of was the cold. Then the pain in my hands and ribs. Then I noticed the wind. I opened my eyes to see snow glistening in the moonlight and the long shadows cast by trees. I had stepped off the spire and dropped only a foot or so, falling to my knees in the snow. My eyes brimmed with tears of joy. I wanted to kiss the ground and throw the snow up in the air and wallow around it like a pig in its own filth. 
But then I recalled the way Scary Carrie had looked at the hospital, the swollen black lumps of necrotic flesh where frostbite had set in. My mother's car was a solid hour, hour and a half's walk away, and I wasn't moving as quickly as I usually did. I got walking as fast as I could bear. I heard the bells, truly heard them, for the last time near the fork, where the access road joins Old Ware Enfield Road, but they didn't fill me with the warmth they had before. No. They stopped me dead in my tracks. They tugged at my guts. They called me home, but also filled me with the sensation of being watched by eyes in the darkness. To this day, I still hear them hourly whenever I get off my meds. There were two police officers waiting for me when I got to my mom's car. You might think I would have run all over again. After all, it was the fear of arrest that had sent me chasing the bells, but I didn't. Instead, I cried. It was cold, I was tired, and my whole body hurt like hell. I didn't care how much trouble I was in, I was just happy to see real people again, people who were alive. I'd learn later that the police had no idea who I was or what I had done to Ryan Dorset. They were there because I'd parked in front of the same trailer that Fletch had parked in front of back in December. When the owner had gotten up to go to work and seen my car outside, she called the police. Apparently, in his haste to get the car after Carrie had fallen through the ice, Fletch had driven over one of her trash cans. I'd nearly killed a kid, but I was being arrested because someone else had ruined a garbage can you could get from Home Depot for $35. I don't recall the officers' names, but I wish I did so I could thank them. Their attitudes towards me changed immediately when they saw the condition I was in. One of them took a blanket from the trunk and wrapped it around me. They tried to ask me what had happened, but all I could do was cry. I'm not sure I would have anything to say anyway. Explaining the bells to someone who's never heard them is like trying to explain the color blue to a dog that was blind from birth and yet we've been hearing about it this entire story. They ushered me into the back of their squad car, and we took off for the hospital, the one Fletch and I didn't know about. Twelve minutes later, we arrived at Mary Lane Hospital, and I was admitted to the ER. The doctors picked up where the police had left off. What happened? Were you in a car accident? Were you in a fight? But I remained unresponsive. They ran their fingers through my hair, checking me for a concussion, but couldn't find any physical indications, and my pupils responded normally. It's like he's in shock. You don't say. Since I wasn't helping, my clothes had to be cut off of me, just in case there were injuries they weren't seeing. The right side of my chest was one gigantic purple bruise. I needed five stitches where the splinter had gone into my finger, and another two where it had come out. The rest of my fingers were clean and bandaged. Then one of them had the bright idea of giving me something to help me sleep. I wish they hadn't. All I dreamed of was her. Amy Lowell Putnam's corpse danced on its post, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth as the bells rang. It was late afternoon the following day before I woke up to find my parents staring at me in my wrist handcuffed to the bed. They were looking at me like I was behind glass in an aquarium, a particularly nasty deep sea fish that turned their stomach. There was pity there, too. 
but mostly disbelief and fear. I wasn't really their little boy anymore. I was a thing, twisted and disturbed. A danger to myself and others. Seeing my parents looking at me like that hurt real bad. But it was still preferable to the blank stare of Amy Lowell's automaton, which was my company at 2 o'clock. And again at 3. And 4. Ryan Dorset's parents never formally charged me with assault. A civil suit was settled between our families out of court. As a condition to their not pressing charges, I had to seek psychological help. I spent the next six months of my life at McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. It, it was probably for the best. The first two weeks, I didn't say a word to anybody about anything. I can't exactly say why. Shame was certainly a big part of it, and I know I was afraid that they'd think I was crazy. Then again, given where I was and why, well, the SS sanity had probably already sailed. After weeks of hearing the bells and watching the automatons reenact their tableaus, after weeks of seeing Amy Lowell dragged about on her pole, I finally broke down and told them what was happening. A woman I will call Dr. Laura was assigned to me. She was in her early 40s, her hair was always messy, and she used a lot of Yiddish expressions. I didn't get most of her jokes, but they still made me feel like we were sharing something and that I could trust her. She diagnosed me as bipolar, believing my attack on Ryan, my experience hearing the bells, and my belief that I'd visited a haunted clock tower in the middle of a reservoir most likely stemmed from what she called a mixed episode, a state where symptoms and depression and mania occur simultaneously, and auditory hallucinations aren't uncommon. <laughs> Her theory was horse shit, but there's no way to argue with a psychologist without sounding like one of those guys in the old horror movies screaming, I'm not mad, I'm not mad, while an orderly crams them into a straitjacket. <laughs> you just say, wow, yeah, that sounds about right, and take whatever pills they give you. You can't win, but you can lose less badly. And I have to admit that after being injected with uh, Haldol, I stopped hearing the bells every hour. She may not have believed my story, but Dr. Laura taught me a lot. We would look at the decisions I regretted, and examine not only the effects of those decisions, but everything that led up to them. What was I doing? How was I feeling? We'd list it all, from my emotions to my bodily sensations, and try to find the pattern that led to my worst decisions. She helped me isolate my self-destructive triggers. Then we'd discuss how I continue on in life and accomplish my goals without stumbling blindly into those triggers. After I got out of McLean, we thought it was best that I didn't go back to my high school. My mother bought the state-approved curriculum for homeschooling, and I spent the rest of high school at our kitchen table. We had to meet with the superintendent of schools a couple times. He seemed perfectly happy not to have me in his school system. Can't say I blamed him. I must have seemed like another Robert Kennan waiting to happen. In September of 2000, the week before his 13th birthday, my little brother asked if he could be homeschooled too. 
In his grade, he had been a fairly popular kid, then one day he came home with a bloody nose. Two weeks later, a black eye. A fat lip. A limp. He was being bullied because of me. I remember one day in particular, with perfect clarity, an older boy had knocked him down on the hardwood floor of gym and dislocated his shoulder, and he had to go to the hospital. My dad went ballistic. He directed most of his anger at Mr. Delvino, the principal. He even threatened to sue the school, but I got some of it too. He gave me a look that particularly screamed, This is your fault. When he returned home that night, my brother got me alone and asked me a question. Did you rape Alina? At first I was shocked. I thought I'd misheard him. I was his brother, and he knew I loved Alina. How could he ask me that? The kids at school, that's what some of them say. After the incident in their yard, Alina's parents had decided to enroll her at Bishop Girton. She hadn't wanted to, who wants to leave their friends behind senior year, but between Rob Kennan and myself, they just thought it'd be best for her to get a fresh start. And after she left, Sarah Cohen had been very vocal in blaming me. I never held that against Sarah. I figured I deserved the fallout for what I had done to Ryan Dorset, but I hadn't seen it coming. Denials poured out of my mouth. Yeah, we had sex, but it wasn't... I couldn't even say it. She never said no. That was true. I never threatened her. So was that. I only wanted to make her feel good. But was that the truth? Like a lot of people, especially guys, I had an image in my mind of what a rapist was. A lone predator, a man in sunglasses and a hooded sweatshirt hiding in a dimly lit garage with a knife in one hand and an improvised gag in the other. I had an idea that they were a breed apart. Depraved and wicked, mean things aware of the harm and the hurt they caused, but determined to do it anyway. That was my idea of what a rapist was, and I didn't fit any of my own criteria. Yes, it was true that I had wanted to make Alina happy, but each time I kissed her, she'd frozen up. I took it as nerves, but I didn't stop. Each time I'd run my hands up her body, she started to cry. <laughs> I thought it was about survivor's guilt, but even if it was, pushing her clearly hadn't made her feel any better. And when we... When I had gotten on top of her and wormed my way beneath her clothes, persisting past stillness and tears, she hadn't said no, but she never said yes. What I had thought, what I had wanted, they didn't matter. Not next to what I did. It's easy to see that now. At the time, I got defensive, unleashing a torrent of vile obscenities about a girl I'd only moments earlier considered the love of my young life. That night, once everyone was asleep, I made my first of three suicide attempts. Tiptoeing my way into the garage, I took the garden hose off the wall and pushed one end into the tailpipe of my mom's car. The other end, I ran up through the driver's side window. The note I left was addressed to Alina. It read simply, This is your fault. It was pure projection. 
I got comfortable and started the engine. As the car began filling with exhaust, I became dimly aware of a sensation creeping up the back of my neck. Was it the carbon monoxide, or was I being watched? Thump. Had Amy Lowell been the mystery figure people saw inside Rob's car the night he killed himself? Did she collect the souls of those she'd condemned? Was that how the automaton's face had been burnt? Let her come, I thought. Anything's better than this. But the thump I'd heard wasn't the sound of Amy Lowell Putnam's post on the garage floor. It was the doorknob slamming into the wall when my brother threw open the door to the house. He saw me and screamed bloody murder until my parents came and the three of them could pull me out of the car. The garage was beneath my brother's room. He had heard the engine start but didn't hear the garage door open, so after a couple of minutes of wandering, he got up to see what was going on. Next thing I knew, I was sitting in the living room with a splitting headache. My mom was hugging me and crying hysterically. It was the first time anyone had held me in nine months. The next morning, I was back in McLean. Dr. Laura and I spent a lot of time talking about Alina. I was surprised she was still willing to work with me, knowing what I'd done, but she was as patient and kind as ever. After two months, I still struggling to wrap my head around how anyone could think what I'd done with Alina had been wrong. To Alina. What I had done to Alina. Why didn't she just say no? It was a textbook example of blaming the victim, but I genuinely didn't understand. I would have stopped. You can never be certain what someone else is experiencing. That's why you have to ask and listen and not assume they want exactly what we want or that they'll respond exactly like we respond. First day? I nodded. We weren't in a session, strictly speaking. Dr. Laura probably shouldn't have been talking to me at all, and especially not about anything that was at the heart of my treatment, but from time to time she would. I think she knew I needed the human contact. Bubala, don't take this as anything but speculation. I can't know what she was thinking any better than you can, but you might want to consider that the last boy that had a crush on her had killed himself three months earlier. I liked it when she called me Bubala. What's that got to do with me? She might have thought that if she said no, you'd do the same. Alina, if you're out there and you're reading this, I am sorry. I apologize unreservedly. It was not your fault. I take full responsibility. If you wanted to press charges against me, I would not refute them. You can get word to me through my parents. If there's anything you want from me, anything that will bring you the slightest amount of closure, it is yours. I was so stupid, so hurtful, so wrong. I'm sorry. In May of 2003, I received my high school diploma. My parents didn't think I could handle living on my own, but I had to get as far away from the spire and the way they looked at me and my reputation around town as I could. My aunt lives in San Jose, California, and I managed to get into a vocational school 20 minutes from her house. Eventually, my parents relented and let me go. 
Fletch wound up getting into BC, which was a big coup for him. As fate would have it, so did Alina. From what I understand, the two of them actually wound up becoming pretty close. The last time Fletch and I spoke was in November of 2002, right around Thanksgiving. He had stopped hearing the bells before the end of his freshman year. Two of Scary Carrie's fingers had to be amputated along with her thumb. She had also lost her left foot from around the mid-calf down. Eventually, she recovered from her aphasia, but not before the school moved her into the special education program. She never made it to college. Mrs. Peterson got her a job at Market Basket Bag and Groceries. My mom sees her from time to time and usually does her best to avoid the register. Neither Carrie nor her mother have asked about me since the incident. I don't know if she still hears the bells, but I doubt it. As for me, I'm unhappy but alive. My fucking autobiography. <laughs> I only hear the bells now when I don't make my Zeprexa, but they're never too far from my mind. Someday, I'm going to die and Amy Lowell Putnam's going to claim me. There's nothing I can do to avoid it. A part of me wishes she'd just hurry up and do it already. The bells really do sound lovely. And that is the end of Spire in the Woods. And let me say that I am actually very happy with how it ended. <laughs> Those last two parts make the entire thing worth reading. Uh, yes. In my opinion. Absolutely. Um, I'm really glad that that kind of turned around and had a cathartic ending. Yeah, great, great way to end. The ending justified the, the, the means, the means yeah. of getting there. I, um... Reading that was tough. I kind of had, like, a mental breakdown while I was reading it. Because, um... Uh, fun fact, I am bipolar, manic-depressive. I have been off medication for probably four or five years. I was uh, institutionalized six years ago, I believe. And, um... It was, like, the hardest, like, week and a half of my fucking life, but I relate to a lot of what he said about not making your life harder and just trying to get out and get through it so that you didn't have people prodding you and looking at you and, and being around insane people when you don't feel insane. It's 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 tough. Um, I remember the person I had to sleep in the same room with, and I just didn't trust him at all, and it made, it made sleep even worse. I also blame a lot of my insomnia for what happened during those two weeks because the medication just fucks you your entire life. Um, I know medication works for a lot of people and it's a lot of conversations I've had with a lot of people about certain medications I should be on and certain medications I should probably give another try. And honestly, lately, with everything I've been going through, I've been thinking about giving it another go now that I have uh, better insurance because, you know, five years ago I didn't, and five years ago I probably needed it the most. Um, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily happy with where I'm at in my life, but there are times where I 
allow myself to feel, if that makes sense. Because when you're on medication, it almost inhibits emotions. It, 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 it inhibits reactions to things. And that's probably why I don't like medication the most, specifically bipolar medication. Anyone who has been on lithium can tell you for a fact that um, it kind of removes your soul and you never quite get it back. Um, it's, it's tough. A lot of things in my life have been ruined for me because of medication. So I try to kind of just isolate myself and smoke weed because it's the best I have right now. <laughs> and I surround myself with nice people and I try to stick to hobbies. And this is probably the realest I've ever been on the show, but you know, we're three years into it. I'm allowed to be real about shit. Um, I'm not an advocate for mental health because I disagree with a lot of the practices and, and medication and things. Um, I really relate to the narrator on this last paragraph. It, it made it almost hard for me to read a little bit because I know how that system works and I know how people look at you. And although it happened, like, I think five or six years ago, I have to say that my entire life has turned around since then. So the fictional narrator, if I had, like, any advice for him, it's that things get better eventually if you just allow yourself that time. Um, I don't think the narrator in his mindset will allow himself that recuperation. Um, I think he has too much of a, uh, I deserve this swallowing self-pity thing going on. Which is, it's, it's fair. I mean, I don't think he raped her. Not really. Um, I don't think... It's, it's a it's a really weird gray area that consent lies in, and we've talked about this on other Spire episodes, where it's like, yeah, she didn't say no, and yeah, she didn't say yes, but people still have the power to make decisions for themselves. So it's like, did she did she not say yes because she was afraid he'd Robert Kennan himself? I don't think so. I really don't. I just think she had the survivor's guilt thing going on and didn't know what to think and was almost like a deer in headlights and then it happened and she hadn't, you know, no choice about it. Yeah, it's that's difficult to say cuz this is all from his perspective. Exactly. Like I'm sure I'm sure her perspective was just like how can I get this guy to help me without him being such a creep? Say, like, uh, well, I guess, I guess this is happening now, even though I don't want it to. Oh, fuck, this is happening, god damn it. Like, shit. And then, like, when she's done, she's just so disgusted with herself that she, like, stops seeing him and stops talking to him and everything, you know? Like, everyone, everyone who has had sex with more than one person can tell you that some sex is bad, and some sex is not asked for, and some sex is forced upon you, and some sex just happens when no one says anything. Like, consent is a really gray fucking area, and I'm actually glad that this story kind of puts a spotlight on the grayer aspects of it. Yeah. Because I think it almost acts as a, um, as a beacon... For people to take as an experience, you know, like when we grew up, we had the Aesop's fables about, you know, looking both ways before you cross the street or 
not trusting strangers to get into their car just because they have candy and Pokemon cards. But like nowadays, the millennials are being warned about, well, the kids are being warned about like STDs, you know, and consent, you know, the, the wolf doesn't want to eat little red riding hood. He wants to fuck her. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird world we live in and a lot of shit happened in this last chapter and I'm feeling a lot of emotions. Yeah. How did you feel about it, Tenron? Um, satisfying ending where he ends up, I guess, the whole spire, him physically being at the spire or the clock tower and uh, the automatons and the the weird, like... I don't know if it was real or like it was metaphysical or Adolf Riefler and and the the rest of the alive people, I guess. The stuck ones. The stuck ones. Yeah, and the and the ones in the flashback. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that that was all very. Uh, um. Kind of like. Oh, how do I say this? It, it was just so. Uh, like a muddy vision almost so it was uh interesting hard to differentiate what was actually happening and what he was perceiving as real but wasn't yeah his time in the clock tower was interesting and then for that long sequence of amy lowell kind of coming after him was was interesting and i'm glad it happened but i guess i so this is just a me thing. Like I, I, sure. I like stories where the um, there is gonna be a, a a haunting menace that is persisting in 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 coming for you. Um, like for instance, whistlers. Right. You know, there's something that is is actively pursuing uh, the characters, the protagonists, mm-hmm. and in this, it's like. There's the, the the bell that's calling you, or calling the narrator. I think of the bell more as like a spell. But I think the bell allows two different things to happen. I think when it is happening, it's almost a spell, like a, a bliss, you know, like a Grecian joy that just wipes over the area. It shows something different. It, it invigorates everyone who hears it, you know. Um, and then I think there's the not bell, which is like the haunt, you know, like the, the, the spooky, the yeah. spooky, like stay here forever notion. Yeah. When, when you're looking at it, it's like, stay here with us when the bell is ringing. When the bell isn't ringing, it's, you are stuck here with us. Like, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the disconnection I made in order to kind of see or at least how to perceive the differences and and why I was afraid of what was happening to the narrator. Yeah. I I agree. I I definitely enjoy a longstanding dread more than I like a visceral connection of parties. Um, I'd much rather something sit in the background, Slenderman-like, and just kind of watch and persist as opposed to something that viscerally yeah, kinetically chases someone. You, you kind and, of are teased that that's going to happen in the story with... Uh, um, ever since the first part, with the with those people saying that there was a second body in the car. Exactly. Like, exactly. Like, and, and, I, and I agree that, that that still stands true. You know, he says to this day, when he has moments, 
um, he still feels like something is watching him, and, yeah. and it's Amy Lowell, you know, like, inviting him back, you know, coming to claim him, as he says. Um, also, I wanted to say, in his Reddit, in the Reddit release for the tenth part, he talks a little bit more in character, like the, um, the author. Ah. He makes several more paragraphs about his other trips to the hospital and Dr. Laura and kind of his other two suicide attempts. I don't think it's super... I don't think it's super important to the story. If I remember correctly, they're just kind of linked with bad things that happened in his life. And from my understanding, um, the narrator, or at least the author of the actual story, non-fictionally speaking, kind of used... Um, real-life events to kind of talk about the times where he's, like, attempted suicide. So it's like, there's an element of reality that kind of hits me with this story, and then there's a very heavy-handed, like, um, 13 Reasons Why kind of feeling that I get with this story. And um, I don't think that's bad, because, any again, any type of attention is good attention, like any type of... Um, spotlight on mental illness is a is a good spotlight mm-hmm. um i think even the worst parts of 13 reasons why could be um ignored because of the spotlight it's putting on mental health for kids you know that's something i fought with ever since i was like fucking 13 so you know there are other people that it hits different and hits harder so like that that's something i think this is a this is a creepypasta for, for young adults. This is a creepypasta for high schoolers. I don't think if, if I was, if I was five or six years older than I am right now, I probably wouldn't find it as compelling, but because I am young and because the stuff that I've been through is so fresh in my mind, I kind of relate to it more than I anticipated. Yeah. Um, my high school was great. I don't want to link any of this shit up to, like, my friends or, like, anyone on the podcast who's listening or anyone who did listen, you know, like, all the bad shit that happened in my life happened, like, during college. Like, I had a really bad college experience. My high school experience was great. I I peaked in high school, as those would say. And I think, you know, everything that came after that was just, you know, as the narrator says, like, some of the worst decisions that you just kind of have to live with. And I think that's a part of growing up and it's a part of the um, the coming of age part of this story and the coming of age part of life. And you don't read that in a lot of stories. At least I don't I don't physically relate to a lot of the things I read in No Sleeps and Creepypastas. So yeah, this was it's unique. nice for me to kind of see something and actually feel something related to, you know, something I literally put hours of work into every week for as much as i bitched about this story and bitched when he kept using the word homely <laughs> which people love by the way they talk homely. <laughs> my friend comes up to me and just said describes things as homely to me ever since listening to that episode oh look at that that young babe how homely how of homely her. he must the be the homely nurse the homely nurse i'm gonna put that on your uh I mean, you're going to outlive me, but I'm going to find a way to come back as a ghost and put it on your tombstone. <laughs> put... why? why does everyone say I'm going to outlive them? <laughs> you're offended. <laughs> That's the funniest part of it, is like, you're offended. <laughs> um, <laughs> I make this joke to frowns all the time, 
I'm just like, Frouts, I'm not going to live past 35, so you better have a good rest of your life. And he's just like, what? And I'm like, if I don't, if I don't, like, if nothing else happens in my life, I'm just going to pull the trigger whenever I feel like getting out of it. And he's like, no, you have to promise me till 50. And I'm like, maybe. And I keep letting him sit on that fence of like, maybe 15 more years with me. I don't want to grow old. Uh, Star Wars every year. Duh, you're gonna live. All right, make it four years from now. <laughs> I'll live for one more trilogy and then I'll kill myself. Uh, yeah. This is not a cry for help. I joke very liberally about my mental health, and people who aren't comfortable with that probably don't like me. <laughs> so, I'm not joking about your mental health. I'm joking about my mental health. And if I don't want to exist on this planet when it turns into a fucking drenched, sun driven, you know, monstrosity, I. You I know, got five syllables for you for why you should live. Ewan McGregor. Like, <laughs> Ewan McGregor. Five <laughs> syllables. Yeah, man. He's a great guy. I'm really excited for Dr. Sleep, actually, now that you you brought it back up Dr. to my mind. The sequel to The Shining that he is starring oh, in. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, really great book, too. Really fun book. Psychic Vampires! <laughs> it's, it's a real thing. So, um... That was Spire in the Woods finale. Everyone learned a lot today about me, and everyone learned a lot today about the story, and I hope we can all just join hands and sing Kumbaya while we suck each other's dicks. I made an appointment with a therapist for Monday. Did you really? I did today. Yep. How do you feel about it, if you don't mind talking about it on the show? Oh, I I have been having some major anxiety and major stress that have that has manifested itself physically so i need to get that addressed by a professional by a professional talk therapist if you were offered medication would you take it i've taken medication but it's uh like low doses and not really strong medication and it's just been to uh, manage uh, depression primarily and so anxiety is something a little bit new for me that that's affected me so greatly i'm not trying to say this as a drug addict but you should really look into cbd like the medical form of of like marijuana pills oh yes that help with yes. anxiety triggers cbd helps with shit man yeah and and i cbd specifically helps with anxiety so i'm not trying like it's not weed. You're not gonna yeah, get. You're not yeah. gonna get the high. You're gonna get the pain reliever. Yeah. You're gonna get the relaxer. Yeah. You're not gonna get the head feelings. You're not gonna get the body feelings. You're gonna get the complete yeah, emotional I should, wipe. I should look into that. It is legal. Yep. You can get it at stores, or if you talk to a doctor and explain your anxiety, they will give you a fucking prescription. Now. In Pennsylvania. Yeah. I'm not saying it as a drug addict. I will never ask you to get anything for me. I'm saying it as your friend. And I'm saying that I could even get you gummies. I could even get you, you know, uh, just CBD, like, tabs, like pills. Do you take it at attacks or do you take it preventative? Both. You could take it either way. I think if you take it preventative, you'll be better. Right now, CBD is one of those things that literally has... Zero side effects. I could list fucking on two hands the medications I've yeah. been on and the bad well, side effects I've been given. I don't plan on... I, I don't... So why I've been exercising and why I'm going talk therapy route is because I don't want to be on medicine. 
I don't either. That's yeah. why I'm not. But, but, you know, if it's something that doesn't make you feel like you're going to a doctor, I think CBD is something that recreational can, can well, help like, people. Would I go to my, my regular doctor? or I'd like to think you could get it a number of places. In fact, I could take you to the fucking Unimart tomorrow and just buy you a shit to, shitload of gummies, you know? like, And you could just try it that way because it's gram per gummy, you know? like It, 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 it soaks into your system the same way a vitamin does. Yeah. Um, and it won't make you anxious. It literally will not make you anxious. It that, that, is, that is the point of CBD. It removes the THC, the, the, yeah. electro, the electronic impulse yeah. that that THC gives you. Anyway, we're, we're meandering. Um, I want to talk more with you post this. I'm going to cut a lot of that out, but uh, I'm, I'm really happy that, you know, you're, you're seeing people and you're, you're doing like a practical remedy to, you know, relieve some, some stuff from your life. I think everyone, I think therapy and, and psychiatry, my, my uncle is a psychiatrist. Um, I hope to have him on the show at some point just to kind of offer us parts about his life, like non-confidentially speaking, um, where he like looks at horror and how he feels about horrifying, you know, elements of life. And, how he thinks about things because he is a very inquisitive uh, person. I, I know you get along with him very well. Um, I think uh, I think a lot of people nowadays suffer um, because the world kind of it promotes. I'm not going to say the world promotes suffering. I'm just going to say that I think there are a lot of social stigmatisms floating around right now, and I think a lot of people feel backed into corners about how they should feel about things and it ends up making them feel something else. And I think like as a kid that is pretty much where like my depression came from is from people telling me that they didn't understand how I was feeling or how they could relate to me. And I think that like stories like this kind of um highlight that and I think it's a very cathartic and um strong way to end the story because I really didn't see, I didn't see him coming out of it, um, a better person at yeah, all. No. I didn't see him coming out of it even really like himself. And it still kind of felt like him even till the very last page. And I think he still is kind of under the spell of the bells. And I think even he as a person kind of makes these, um, these little remarks, where he's just like, you know, I, I still want to hear the bells, you know, eventually I will see Amy Lowell, you know. There are those moments that carry over, and I think it's very important to the story and, and how uh, and how he's told the story thus far. And I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually happy with how this story ended. And I could, I could say that um, solely because of these last yeah, two parts. I agree. Any, any final thoughts, Tenron? Um, I'm not, I'm just having some really weird asthma. <laughs> I'm having some weird asthma. Uh, you heard it here, folks. He's breathing weird. And, and we will, uh, we're going to let Tenron slumber for a little bit post, uh, Spire in the Woods. We have some good shit coming up soon. Um, Halloween kind of marks our soon-to-be three-year 
anniversary of doing the show. It doesn't feel like we've been doing it for three years. I mean, it feels like it to me, maybe a little bit, just because it's a lot of work. But um, I think there's a lot of good shit still to come, and I hope people still, you know, stay tuned. And we're st- we're still getting like twenty listens a day. I have nothing to I have nothing to worry about. Like, oh, no. we we still have the audience, so. Um, if anything, year three is looking very promising, and I hope to read just as uh, thrilling shit as we've read on all of your episodes thus far. You know, Left Right Game, Inspire in the Woods, they're all they're all up there for me. Buy stuff from the store, folks. <laughs> Buy some merch, bitches. Um, merch it up. I'm gonna I'm gonna make uh, I'm gonna make some mental health merch. Um, the first sticker is gonna say "Kill yourself." <laughs> And then, then another another shirt's gonna say, "Did you rape Alina?" <laughs> uh, no one would get it, but it would be a bestseller. <laughs> Did you rape Alina? <laughs> it doesn't matter the answer, because you're wrong. Whatever the answer is, if you say yes, you're wrong. If you say no, you're wrong. Cause rape. Oh wait, another shirt. Just the word homely. Homely. Homely would be a good one. <laughs> let uh let us know if you'd buy the homely sticker. If I if I did a nice cursive font uh, with some flowers, uh, if you'd buy that on a shirt or if you'd buy that on a sticker. Homely nurse. If I just said homely. No, I don't think nurse would sell as much, but <laughs> homely just sounds good. Um there are a lot of bumper sticker things that come off of this story that I'm sure we'll joke about. Um, did you rape Alina? <laughs> did you rape Alina? Oh, God. Um, I still think I'm unhappy, but alive should be my autobiography <laughs> title. <laughs> and, like, in parentheses it says, but hopefully not for, for long or something like that. Um... Uh, yeah, everyone out there, uh, take your meds, see your doctors, take care of yourself. I think that's, that's the end note for today. It's been a very cathartic episode. For some reason, Tenron and I always go to this place at the end of our episodes. Um, or at the end of our series, I think, I think you and I get a little, uh, a little hopeless, a little romantic about the time we've spent reading stories together and, and how the characters make us feel and how the stories make us feel. And I think we always kind of look fondly back on the times we've had, like and that's Mr. Bear's Cellar and the Whistlers. <laughs> that's why we're so critical about Star Wars. <laughs> I'm being serious. I, and I know you are, and I agree with you, which is why I'm laughing. <laughs> Oh, what fuck. did Finn make you feel? All right. <laughs> Does Ray have feelings? <laughs> the one who makes me feel anything is 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 Ben. It's Kylo Ren. He's the uh, the one to make he make is you feel the, remotely he is anything. The, he is the moral compass of the entire series, and I'm thankful for him as a person. But I have one question to ask you, Tyrone. Did you rape Alina? <laughs> Weed, you put